My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Hilder. Welcome back to Aquarium Drunkard Transmission. So glad to have you here with us once again. This week on the program, we are joined by electronic musician Moby and Lindsay Hicks. Together, they run Little Walnut, a production company responsible for documentaries like Punk Rock Vegan, music videos, and Moby Pod, a podcast dedicated to offering unique perspectives on music, animal activism, climate change, and beyond. I probably don't have to explain to you all that much about who Moby is, but his work has meant a lot to me over the years, Uh, especially his two biographies in which he is candid and remarkably transparent about his creative process, depression, addiction, and life. Moby is uh, an, an exceedingly honest character, and I've really thought that Over the years, as I look at his work, uh, the more and more I find it to be just so brave and open in ways that aren't common in our culture. He seems to reject the easy cynicism and the guardedness that rules the day. When I was just a kid, play absolutely blew my mind. It wasn't just my introduction to electronic music. It was also uh, my introduction really to roots music, gospel, blues, the Alan Lomax recordings. More than that, its liner notes were pivotal. I already really liked music and I already knew it was important, but here was an artist using their platform to disseminate essays about morality, animal rights, and faith. To me, it was revelatory that you could pair these sorts of essays with music and it cemented in my mind the idea that music was about more than just sounds. It was a way to explore the world, uh, to find new ideas, to challenge assumptions, and to open yourself up to the unknown. So that's the spirit that I tried to bring to this conversation, which, consider this a little content warning, does get kind of bleak at times. Um, It's easy to understand why. We recorded it at the end of the summer here, uh, and that meant the experience of living through the hottest month ever recorded in an American city was fresh on my mind. But it's also a very funny conversation and very human and full of a lot of quips and jokes. I want to note that, you know, I don't want to be uh, hypocritical here. I'm not a vegan, um, but nonetheless, I really did find myself compelled by what Moby has to say on the subject. And like I said, the idea is exploring ideas. And so I hope you get as much of this talk. uh, I hope you get as much out of this talk as, as I did. Before we roll tape, though, a reminder. Transmissions is brought to you by listeners like yourself who pledge their support on Patreon. For exclusive audio, notes, radio extras, and a lot more, check out Aquarium Drunkard on Patreon. I don't need to tell you that independent music media is in a state these days. It's hard to know exactly where things are going. One thing I'm certain of is that people like us want to connect with people like you. We're listeners just like you, And it's important for us to be able to have a channel, a direct line of communication. 
so that we can share the things that we care about musically. You can share the things you care about musically with us. There are so many independent artists out there who are trying to find a way in this weird streaming eco system of, you know, algorithms and, and, and all of this technology that seems like it should make it so much easier for us to connect to the things that we care about artistically, but has often proven uh, to be the opposite. Uh, so anyway, I don't have any ideas really about how things move forward beyond this one. It's about direct connections and the Patreon community offers that. We're able to share things directly with you there and by pledging your support, you're able to ensure that what is spinning on our turntables can make its way over to your turntable. So check out our Patreon. Uh, it's what allows Aquarium Drunkard to remain a free site open to all. So pledge your support there. We deeply appreciate it. And I will end the hard sell pitch now and get into my conversation with Moby and Lindsay Hicks of Moby Pod. Uh, thanks so much for hanging out. I'll speak with you a little bit more on the other side. It's such a pleasure to have both of you on Aquarium Drunker Transmissions. Thank you for taking the time. Yeah, of course. I loved the title of your podcast so much. I was like, how how could we not do this podcast? <laughs> oh, I'm so glad. Uh, which uh, which which element are you referring to? The Aquarium Drunkard part, or the transmissions part, or the combination thereof? The combination of all. I just have so many. You know, the imagery that runs through my mind is kind of wild what does it mean does it mean a drunk person in an aquarium trying to communicate with the outside world it uh, well so it's a lyric from a wilco song uh jeff mm -hmm. tweedy sings i am an american aquarium drinker and the guy who started aquarium drunker justin gage when he started it in 2005 like so many people he was just starting a blog and he liked the way that sounded but it still exists after all these years, you know, in an era where not as many blogs from that era are still around. So, um, but yeah, that's the thing. And then transmissions was the, originally this show was a music podcast where it was like, oh, like an hour long collage dropped every so often. But when we rebooted it as a conversation series, we thought that transmissions still worked, especially because we're recording it remotely even pre-pandemic so it's like a transmissionary quality yeah anyway so that's some of the uh the thoughts there but yeah it's such a great i've spent a lot of time listening to your guys's podcast and nice and i really enjoyed it 
you know, Moby, I don't normally do this, but we met once before back in 2013 at Coachella. I was working for a company called Zia Records and you were doing a signing for folks at the um the tent at Coachella where we had like a mobile record store and it was somehow my job to get on a golf cart. I wasn't driving the golf cart, but to get on a golf cart, go find you because you were like backstage, maybe behind the Gobi tent or I don't remember which one it was, but it was like, so the driver and I went and we grabbed you and then we had like maybe a five minute drive back. And in that five minutes, we had an intense personal an alarmingly honest conversation, which we had never met, and it just happened right away. So, Lindsay, I have to imagine for you, are those standard conversations with Moby? <laughs> I would say I'm, and I've known Moby for many years now, but I'm I'm consistently shocked by his willingness to be open and honest and vulnerable, and even things that you know other people might think are embarrassing, Moby really owns every single aspect of of his life. And I think that that is such a beautiful quality about him. I think the way he shares his um, experience, experience and strength and hope <laughs> um, is, is incredibly meaningful to me as his friend. And I hope meaningful to the people that um, listen to the podcast or listen to him in any medium. Um, well, obviously I... As a as a narcissist, I love being on the receiving end of all these nice things that you guys are saying. But I will say there are a lot of things I am profoundly uncomfortable about as regards me. Like, you know, like and part of it's just acceptance, you know. In a perfect world for years, I thought, okay, I will be six foot two and I will have a beautiful full head of hair, and I will be able to sing like Chris Cornell or Robert Plant. And I'll be able to dance like Justin Timberlake and I will be a god among men. And then I looked in the mirror and I'm like, oh, you're a little nerdy nebbish who ideally should be like manning a table at the Burbank Comic Con or something. So the acceptance around that definitely, it's sort of liberating rather than fighting against it or pretending that that's not the case. But then every now and then, I'm confronted with the actual truth of my nerdiness. And I don't mean nerdy in a good way, because I know like lots of, you know, supermodels and rock stars will call themselves nerds. And I'm like, no, actual, awkward, truly uncomfortable nerdiness. Uh, and every now and then I'm confronted with that. And I'm like, oh, my God, like, I'm so much worse than I even was willing to admit. Lindsay, what kind of conversations did you want to bring to this podcast? And how did, I mean, was it, a, was it a situation where the two of you had been talking and you realized, oh, hey, this should be a podcast? Um, or was it, did it work in a way where it was like the idea came up and then you started kind of figuring out what that might look like? How did it present itself as a, as a project? I've I've always been before I, I I work with Moby and his production company. Moby and I have a production company together called Little Walnut. And so we're always trying to figure out what we can do, especially as it relates to animal rights, but also climate change, um, but also human rights. And so we're always trying to figure out what we can do. But even before that, um, in the years of our friendship, I've always been 
kind of uh, taken aback almost by how Moby conducts himself in conversation with other people. He's so good at asking questions and synthesizing information and being present and, and listening in this incredibly active way. So I've always thought that Moby would have, would be great as a podcast host. Um, and it was something that we had kind of tossed back and forth and we weren't really sure how we wanted to do it. If we wanted it to be something very specific or something more open. And over time, we just kind of decided that it would be a really fun idea to have, do it, to create a podcast with Moby where he could talk about literally anything he wanted with anyone that he wanted. So we weren't painting ourselves into any sort of corner. It was just this kind of space to have conversations that felt either really, really fun or really, really important. Um, and I, I, I hope that that's what, what we've done. We've really enjoyed the process of doing it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Are you guys at work on like a season two currently or how is, what's the, what's the, what status is the project in right now? Well, we, uh, I mean, cause we live right around the corner from each other and we work on a ton of different things. So when you said season two, that sounds so formal and <laughs> planned out. And uh -huh. the, the truth is, you know, I have my recording studio and once a week we go into the recording studio and talk about nonsense or talk about things that are ostensibly meaningful and important. And what Lindsay was sort of saying is one of the main goals here is to try and address issues, you know, to try and create a platform that addresses again, ostensibly important issues. I mean, first and foremost is animal rights because my life's work beyond anything else is trying, to, you know, being a vegan and trying to move the needle away from the current system, you know, where over a trillion animals are killed by and for humans every year. So that's my day job. You know, everything else is sort of either in service of that or, you know, as regards music, it's almost like music has become like a refuge against or like against um for you know a way to find refuge in such a stressful dystopian world yeah you guys talking about animal rights and talking about how that relates to climate change really brings to mind to me how climate change has always been something that has been talked about my entire lifetime, right? Like this, I mean, it's, it's not like climate change and the awareness of it just happened. Uh, we've known since probably, I guess, like the late 60s or something, what track we're on. So, um, but climate change has always felt like an abstract conversation in some ways. Like it's going to get bad in the future or whatever, sort of a, an amorphous date sometime down the line. But we're, I mean, we're living through it and it's happening and we're seeing the effects of it and we're kind of going through all of that. And I record from Arizona, so I'm like legitimately on the front lines. Phoenix is a bizarrely um, situated city and the heat wave that we experienced earlier this summer was, you know, mind breaking. But nonetheless, climate change remains a difficult thing to talk about. And I guess maybe if you guys are down, we could just talk a little bit about why is it so difficult to talk about and why is it so frustrating uh, 
that the tenor of the conversation so often understandably veers towards the dystopian. Um, but is that the best way to talk about it? I mean, I'm just, I don't know. I, I, I'll throw it to you oh. guys. You guys are the professionals. Well, <laughs> yeah. You, well, you've hit the nail on the head. And we, we just actually interviewed one of our favorite climate activists, a guy named Peter Kalmus, and he's on social media as the climate human. And he works at NASA. He's got two PhDs, but he is on the front lines of climate activism. He's been arrested multiple times. And this was one of the things we talked about is the truth is people have known about anthropocentric or anthropogenic climate change since the early 20th century. There's actually, there's a newspaper article, I think in the New York Times from the 1920s saying that emissions from burning fossil fuels, they didn't know about animal agriculture yet, were going to change the climate. So we've known about it for over hundred years, but to your point, it's, it's up until almost today, it's existed in the realm of opinion for so many people. You know, and I think that's one of the reasons why, especially Trump supporters and Republicans and Fox News viewers have such a hard time with it, because everything they do exists in the world of wrong opinions. And I'm almost not even saying that in an incendiary trying to like look, start a fight way. I'm, what I'm saying is they're wrong about everything. Like they're wrong about guns. They were wrong about the war in Iraq. They're wrong about diet. They're wrong about politics. They're wrong about Trump. They're wrong about everything. But for the most part, they're just fun opinions that bind them together. You know, they feel like they have this sense of solidarity and community about these contrary wrong opinions. And I think that climate change for them is a double existential threat because not only is it destroying the red states way faster than it's destroying the blue states, it's also the first time their wrong opinions are killing them. I guess COVID was similar as well, but, and I feel like that's why, because so many people on the right especially are rejecting anything to do with climate change because it is such a comprehensive ontological threat to their worldview where they can just have smug opinions and all of a sudden they're confronted with the fact that they are as wrong as they've ever been right i would I, we have our next episode that's coming out is with peter and so i've been working on it and i'm just astounded by i mean he he is in a state of terror about the state of our planet and this is the person that's on the front lines that knows the most it's scary to hear him talk about it but one of the things that he says is that of all of the terrible dangerous things donald trump did and that the republican party is doing is to to sow distrust in the concept of climate change and the environmental disaster that we find ourselves in because it is the i mean i would say it's the biggest issue facing us right now because our planet is dying the place <laughs> we live is is the place to Sorry. be i mean but it's well, true i mean how, how how could there be a bigger issue yeah. than a planet in peril it is it is and, a little frustrating sorry to jump in but it's very frustrating when especially like i completely understand that so many progressive ideas are profoundly important you know issues of equity i mean 
I subscribe to all of them, but every issue that we care about, that you care about, that everyone listening cares about, they all require a stable climate. Like without a stable climate, none of these other issues will have any, we can't move forward with any of them. Yeah. And the one thing that really makes my brain boil out of my ear holes is the unwillingness of progressives to look at animal agriculture, not just in health, but also in climate. Like the number of times I've read an article in the New Yorker or somewhere, and they talk about climate change and don't mention animal agriculture. And even Al Gore admits meat and dairy production is the third leading cause of the climate emergency. Peter Kalmus thinks it's the second leading cause of the climate emergency. And the blindness, the, the unwillingness that the progressives especially have to address that doesn't inspire a lot of hope in me. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm filled with so many thoughts about what you both have said. One being, Moby, you brought up, you know, wrong opinions or bad opinions. Uh, <laughs> and I, I wonder if maybe it, it, it goes even deeper than that, or if it's maybe even a little more insidious, because I could be wrong and I know that this is not the case for everybody, but I kind of think that everybody knows what's happening on some level, uh, that it feels too... You can hide your head in the sand, but you kind of have to be aware that that's what you're doing to do it. You know what I mean? Like, there's, I, I don't know on what level people know things, but I think that on a deep level, maybe even a spiritual level... There's an awareness of what's happening, no matter what language is used to obfuscate. I always screw up on that word. Obfuscate. Yeah, exactly. It's a hard word. It's so fucking hard. hard Everybody listens on this podcast. There there aren't too many English words where F follows B. I know. What the hell? Come on, guys. Could you have cut us poor podcasters a break? Um, But no, um, I feel like maybe there's a a kind of, yeah, it's a kind of, we just ran an interview with Anoni, who's an incredible artist uh, on Aquarium Drunkard, and she was talking about how we have just utterly disconnected from the environment in a way, in a profound way, as a, as a culture, and we have externalized and thought of it as something else, right? Which is one reason why when we talk about the planet dying, my... inkling is to almost push back on that just a tiny bit not because the planet is not in peril but it feels more to me our role on the planet is what's in peril like it will potentially regenerate now granted the loss of biodiversity is like a a terrible and there's no there's no getting around the the mass death and loss but the planet itself i mean i do believe will continue the cycles of nature now whether or not we're on it is a is the real question right is if there's there's any way yeah yeah i mean you've raised a lot of very important points and you're absolutely right dna will survive it just looks that within a few hundred years the dominant life forms on the planet will be jellyfish and bacteria and all of the the mammals are most likely going to disappear. The birds will most likely disappear. Like everything we love will most likely disappear. Mm. There'll be some trees, there'll be some plants, there'll be some bacteria, there'll be some jellyfish, 
but a lot of the other creatures are going to disappear. And on one hand, I appreciate, and I don't want to be too negative and too dark, um, because I also want to talk about music, like you mentioned, Anoni, and I got all excited because I love her so much. Uh, At one point, I remember she and I went out to lunch at a vegan restaurant years ago in New York, and I thought to myself, you know, I don't want to get married, but I could see getting married to Anoni. Like, just what a beautiful (laughs) spirit and voice. So, and also, just as a complete random aside, I was looking at your uh, the website and looking at all of the people on your guest contributors who I've either revered, worked with, been friends with, grew up with. I mean, I have Mission of Burma and Jim James and Robin Hitchcock, just all these people, Steve Earle, who are either like, friends or what have you and i just it, it's it's really wonderful reading all this all these names and remembering their music and mm-hmm. their contributions especially robin hitchcock like a soft boy song came up on my spotify the other day and i was reminded how much i love them but so good. that's a random tangent that has nothing to do with climate change i'm just trying to <laughs> lighten the mood a little bit but yeah. there's one almost like occam's razor reductive variable which no one is willing to talk about and it's the it's the it and i'm gonna say it because this is the thing it explains so much but unfortunately i'm and i might even get in a lot of trouble for saying it the average iq in the united states is 98 and going down Mm. like we are dumb and So I think when you're talking about people's awareness of climate change, there is a possibility you're giving people too much credit. Not everybody. And I'm not trying to like throw people under the bus for being dumb. I'm just saying climate change, it's as we've seen over and over and over again, making a simple argument that is wrong is going to have a lot more traction than a complicated argument that is correct. Sure. You know? So that's why you have the Lauren Boberts and the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Matt Gateses of the world saying, oh, well, the climate's always been changing. Like, that's an easy soundbite as opposed to saying, well, anthropogenic climate change is informed by all sorts of variables, uh, and some of which involve feedback loops like the albedo effect and deforestation. Like, at that point, middle America is back to TikTok. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a hard concept to grasp. I think for most people, uh, you know, they'll look at climate change like I look at ghosts, where I don't really understand what it is and I'm scared. And if anyone brings it up or if I think it might exist, I just want to close my eyes really tight and high. <laughs> like I just work really hard to not think about it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how most people, the way I think of ghosts is I think how many people think of climate change. And and one other thing I will mention there, because Lindsay, I completely agree, is, uh, and also I feel like I'm just getting myself in trouble left and right, but nonetheless, <laughs> is the fact that a lot of people, to state the obvious, are scared and unhappy yeah, and unhealthy, you know, and I, I know that that's stating the obvious, but it's also, it's a sad, uncomfortable truth. And I feel like a lot of people's unhappiness and un- lack of health and discomfort they can attribute it to other things, either things that are, 
you know, they can attribute it to immigration wrongfully. They can attribute to other things that are easier to point a finger at as opposed to climate change because climate change and other things like even diet and health, like those involve basically a tectonic shift in people's view of authority because, and Lindsay and I were just talking about this yesterday, how so many of us, even if people question authority a little bit, there's still the assumption that like politicians and thought leaders and corporations are all working hard on our behalf. And I'm like, well, look at the evidence. Mm -hmm. They're not, you know, even the good ones, like, I mean, I'll vote for Joe Biden. I'll probably donate to his campaign, but like he's unwilling to declare a climate emergency and he's subsidizing fossil fuel production and meat and dairy production. And I'm like, okay, so he's a good one and he's still part of the problem. So yeah, it's then the last thing I'll sorry for rambling on so much, but that's what I do, especially around this issue is at some point, this is almost like the equivalent of getting sober. Um, like I can say as a, a, an alcoholic, as a drug addict, as someone who's been sober for a little while, the last thing you want to do when you're drinking and doing drugs is admit that you're an alcoholic or admit that you're a drug addict. And the only time you're willing to change is when you're, I'm, I'm probably going to use this word incorrectly, incontrovertibly confronted with the consequences of your actions. Mm -hmm. And the hope when someone is confronted with the consequences of their actions is that they have the willingness to change and the ability to change before the actions kill them. And yeah. it's the same thing with climate change. Like if we're not willing to change, if we're not willing to admit it's a problem, it, tragically and not without hyperbole, it'll kill us. Yeah. Which Sorry, is, I'm, which I'm, I'm stealing it's, way it's, too much. I feel like I just need to shut up for a minute. Like I'm such an opinionated loudmouth. Um, I apologize for rambling no, on so much. I, I agree with everything that you're saying, though. I just, I just want to kind of, uh, to add to that, say that there are things that everyone can do. Every dollar you spend is a vote. If you, mm -hmm. when it comes time for you to buy a new car, consider a hybrid or electric car. If you can afford solar, do solar. If you can, you know, not buy meat and dairy products, don't buy meat and dairy products because that dollar says to them, I want you to mm -hmm. pollute the rivers. I want you to pollute the lakes. I want you to cause immense suffering and damage to the environment and people's health. Just every day you can make choices that say, to the, you know, the powers that be, the corporations, the politicians, this is what I want to see. This is the direction I want the world to go. So we do have power mm -hmm. every day. Yeah, that's absolutely worth thinking about. I think another thing that's in our hands to some degree is just the way we talk about this stuff and the way mm -hmm. that we can remain open to difficult truths and difficult conversations Something I learned from, and Moby, this was mind-blowing to me as somebody who's been listening to play since it came out, but I never realized that the song Southside was a sort of post-apocalyptic like future vision, um, which you also do on the song Mirror Anarchy, a sort of post-apocalyptic situation. I know you're somebody who also grew up as a fan of science fiction, and I can't help but wonder if some 
where along the line in these last couple decades, the concept of a future that was better than the current moment almost just went away or it seems to have maybe receded in the culture. We have a rush of dystopian visions versus anything like a outside of maybe like Ursula K. Le Guin or somebody, there's not a ton of sort of utopian ideology being explored even in our fictions. I wonder if that speaks to some core underlying thing of like if we can't imagine better futures and if we become bad at articulating what those futures might look like, do they maybe start to recede as a possibility? How does that sit with you guys? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny. Um, Lindsay and I were texting this morning. Oh, by the way, I'm actually installing new solar panels on my roof. And I don't know, and there, so there's this crazy sound of them moving the panels on my roof right now. And I'm wondering if you guys can hear that and if I need to go somewhere else. Uh, barely, but don't worry about it. We're, we're big. I had, I had an episode a couple of weeks ago where the guest went on a walk during the interview and went, went, went over to the beach and <laughs> That's amazing. encountered a rave on the beach. It was truly incredible. So I'm all about, where were they? Uh, he's in, he's in Cornwall, uh, the UK. Yeah. He was, he was, all, I guess I got to go to Cornwall. That sounds fun. Ju- well, yeah. Lindsay, you would love Cornwall. Cornwall's also, well, really? Oh, but now I have to go back to talk about climate change. Were you going so to talk about Aphex Twin or what were you going to talk about? No, this, I was going to talk about the Atlantic, mm, oh, what's, it, what's Marid- the second word? Merid- meridional overturn current. Mm. Um, it's basically what drives the, the jet stream and all the ocean currents. And so when you go to Cornwall in the UK, it's warm. Like they have palm trees and they go surfing. Yeah in the UK because of the Gulf Stream. And one of the consequences of climate change is that's going to shut down. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the AMOC, there are a lot of climate scientists who think it's about to shut down like tomorrow. They Originally they thought, oh, a thousand years, then a hundred years, then 10 years. And now they're saying because of inc- and the lack of salinity in ocean water, it's actually potentially gonna shut down soon. And the consequences for that it's apocalypse times a thousand. So, mm. okay, sorry to sorry to bring it back to <laughs> dystopian apocalyptic stuff. But then, Jason, you're absolutely right. The when when I was growing up as a very old person, even dystopian futures seemed exciting and optimistic, you know. But like science fiction, when we were when I was growing up, science fiction was it was the future was going to be so much better. We were going to have all these amazing devices that were going to like herald in this progressive utopia. War was going to be a thing of the past. Um, We're going to live forever and travel at light speed around the galaxy and then the universe. And the other thing that reinforced that, and this is, I'm, I'm sorry to be again, a little bit depressing is it felt like the arc of history was moving in such a progressive, rational, compassionate direction. You know, I was born in 1965. So like you had the hippies who were trying to move things in a rational direction. And then in the seventies, you know, whether it was Sesame street or 
you know, solar Jimmy Carter, solar power, solar power panels on the White House. Mm-hmm. And then even into the 80s, musically, like it felt like we were getting rid of these old, hidebound, major label musical genres and replacing it with thoughtful indie rock. And and then the internet was going to be a force for good. And uh, yeah, that optimism where it's like, I, I'm really trying to self-edit so I don't sound quite so pessimistic, but how did Woodstock 69, you know, peace, love and everything become Woodstock 99 with setting things on fire and Limp Biscuit and rape? How did the internet, this, this thing for change become election disinformation and leading to like the genocide of the Rohingya? How, like, just on and on and on, all these things that were supposed to be utopian and institutions of reason and progress uh, have kind of simply not become that. And that dystopianism, boy, I really feel like I'm such a, like I almost feel like I need to go back into therapy three times a week to like figure out how at least to pretend to not be so negative and dystopian. (laughs) <laughs> I don't think you need to do that because there's, um, you know, you'll sometimes hear people talk about um, the term positive or, or to- toxic positivity or whatever. And uh, I don't think we're in danger of steering into that territory on this uh, podcast so far, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah. um, but mm-hmm. I do think that, like, uh, I started reading kim stanley robinson's ministry for the future which is a book a sci-fi book i don't know if either of you have read it but it's a sci-fi book sort of about what the world might look like in in uh in in a climate change um future and it is not a light read and it's not a gentle everything is going to work out great sort of thing it's a more complex narrative in which terrible things happen and good things happen and people sort through what it means when the terrible things have happened and all of that so in a way when i say optimism i don't necessarily we don't even have to mean it in that sort of shiny false uh easy to digest way right like optimism is survival optimism is the belief that we can survive things and so i guess all i'm saying is even among friends who are engaged and care about this stuff and even among myself i've definitely felt moments where i start to slip into a kind of nihilistic feeling um and i think it's understandable and there are great you could always justify it you know uh if you're good enough at that but i just think a little bit about the idea that and maybe this is a great place to segue into music because one of the cool things about music is that it gives us a space like you alluded to Moby, a space that is outside of this conversation a little bit in which maybe we can process it or think about it or allow it to manifest in ways that aren't uh, so simple, right? Like a, a piece of art is complex. I was listening a lot to the to the recent ambient record, Moby, and enjoyed the, t- the conversation the two of you had about ambient music as like a survival tool, essentially, right? I mean, is that a fair way to put it? Uh, I mean, it's, as I sort of alluded to earlier, um, 
you know, I've been making music since I was nine years old. You know, I started out playing classical music and studying music theory, and then I played in punk rock bands, and I became a hip-hop DJ and played in a Joy Division cover band and made electronic music. And for most of my upbringing, all I wanted to do was make music and somehow be around the world of music. You know, every anything when I was growing up, anything pertaining to the world of music was fascinating and exciting, whether it was a fanzine or a college radio station or a record label or a concert venue. Like I remember in 19, what year would have this been? 84, 85, maybe. My then girlfriend and I won tickets to go see REM at the Beacon Theater. Uh, and we somehow snuck backstage and this was before the band even got there and we saw their deli platter and we couldn't believe how exciting this was being backstage at the beacon theater seeing a rock band's deli platter like yeah. that's how obsessed we were with anything <laughs> pertaining to the world of music and then and i'll try and keep this relatively brief because i don't want it to be too self-involved then as the 90s progressed i started having a career as a musician which was baffling to me because i'd never expected that and then in the 2000s, started having a sort of very successful career as a musician, which clearly I'd never expected. And I had a brief period to my great shame where I really loved success and I loved the fame and I loved making money and being invited to fancy parties. But it all went wrong, not surprisingly, as it should and tends to. So... In about 2008, I got sober. And when you get sober, you sort of have to reinvent yourself and figure out like what, what works and what doesn't. And what I realized was that music, I had, I had been abusing music for a while. I'd been thinking of music as like a career or as a job when music is beauty, it's transcendence, it's refuge, it's connection with the sublime it's a way of expressing the inexpressible and around this time i also started working with oliver Sacks and this organization he started called the institute for music and neurologic function which looks at how music actually heals the brain it promotes neurogenesis and decreases stress hormones and so that helped me have this realization that oh music it, music can be monetized. It can generate revenue streams. It can create careers, but those have to be the ancillary byproducts. The focus always, from my perspective, needs to be the innate ability of music to be transcendent, to be beautiful, to be powerful. Not that it always is, but it was just a wonderful epiphany that I had when I realized all I need to do is focus on music as powerful potential beauty and transcendence and ignore the rest of it. And if the rest works out, that's fine. But the rest is tawdry, the, you know, commercialism. And I understand I was a part of a very commercial music world for a long time, but it is, you can't prioritize commerce over art. Art can be commercial, but the art itself, as David Lynch said, creativity is beautiful. And that needs to be the focus. So, uh, yeah, so letting 
And maybe people could say, wow, what a position of privilege you're in that you're allowed to have this opinion. I'm like, yeah, maybe that's the case, but nonetheless, it doesn't make it wrong. Putting your music up online is not always the easiest thing in the world to figure out, but DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads. And as an artist, you keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, all the major streaming services. You can use it to edit your lyrics and your song credits. So important in the internet age to let people know the kind of people you're collaborating with. And uh, DistroKid makes that easy. You can also see all your stats from the streamers and, of course, add a credit card to purchase album extras. The DistroKid app is available now on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. It's funny, Rick Rubin has been on this tour of doing kind of the music guru circuit in a way. He wrote a, a, a really great book that I loved called The Creative Act. And if I've seen one criticism, you know, kind of more often than any other, it has been people saying something sort of like what you just said, which is like, yeah, it's easy for a millionaire, maybe maybe more. I don't know how much money Rick Rubin has, probably a lot. Um but it's really easy for somebody like that to talk about this pure, uh, centered approach to creating art. And don't worry about what happens once you've created it. It'll, you know, be its own thing. And I understand why people are saying that, because he is a superstar music producer. But he's right. He's right. Like, you do have to make a thing that is a representation of yourself a unique thing that only you could make before really anybody can connect to it, right? Because we're more connected in that centered zone. I, I'm glad you brought up Lynch because I was curious about, you know, you've had a, a tendency to become friends with some pretty cool Davids in your life. Um, <laughs> da David Bowie discussed an awful lot. Um, the amount of times I've heard you discuss uh, in your book or in the podcast, living near David Bowie is, you know, very understandably, I would never be able to stop talking about anything that I did with David Bowie. You did a lot with him. But you also have collaborated with Lynch, and I know that he was a big kind of inspiration for, uh, when, when you were um, kind of coming out of a few years, getting sober, all of the stuff that you have alluded to, his work became very especially meaningful for you. And then now you guys have collaborated a number of times. You directed a video for him, The Big Dream. He directed a video for you. What's it like working with David Lynch? I can't really wrap my head around that. Well, I mean, the amazing thing about David Lynch is, I mean, there's so many amazing things about David Lynch. To state the obvious, his work can be so incredibly dark and at times unbelievably violent and brutal and inscrutable and that's part of what makes it exciting and wonderful but he is a delight like he's just a light-hearted happy friendly creative person who just goes into his studio every day to make things 
doesn't, you know, he does paintings, he does different types of art, plays a lot of music, etc. And it's just that that joy that he brings to it. And it's funny because like sometimes you'll be spending time with David Lynch and he'll be so ebullient and lighthearted and joyful. And you're like, how did you invent Bob? Mm -hmm. You know, like think of that, like the ending of Fire Walk With Me, spoiler alert, when Bob kills Laura Palmer. uh, And it's so brutal. You're like, how did this joyful mind create that brutality? And I, it's, 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 it's wonderful. And it has sort of reminded me that existence is, to state the obvious, sort of like a dialectic or a paradox where, you know, like there is no such thing as all dark or all light. Like everything is an intermingling of the two. And he really has reminded me of that. And also reminded me that the joy that can come from just trying to make things, just be being creative. And to your point earlier about privilege, and I feel like by being relatively privileged, my opinion about privilege is suspect and could be easily <laughs> dismissed. But I will say, you know, when I was 19 years old, I lived in an abandoned factory in a crack neighborhood. And I spent three years living in this abandoned factory, making $2,000 a year. I had no bathroom. I had no running water. And I was quite happy because I got to work on music. And so if you want to look at the opposite of privilege, mm-hmm. it's peeing in a bottle in an abandoned factory with no heat in February in a crack neighborhood. But I had electricity so I could work on music. And I hopefully that um, attenuates my privileged, you know, my privileged opinions now uh, because I was living the same sort of, I had the same appreciation for creativity then that I do now. Yeah. By the way, Lindsay, I'm sorry. I'm rambling on way too much. This is Jason. You caught me after having way too much coffee and going for a hike and boy, oh boy, I feel like I need a nap. I, well, we won't keep you too much longer. Lindsay, did you know Moby when he got sober? No, that was, you've been sober for how long now, Moby? This will be, this is my 15 year sober anniversary. Congratulations. He, he, yeah, it's it's incredible. It's such an accomplishment. But no, I've always known Moby as a sober person. Right. Right. Okay. I'm because I was curious about about that change. But at the same time, it sounds to me like, especially when it comes to music, you've been somebody. Moby, have you been somebody who is pretty much always creating music? Do you ascribe to a sort of Lynch schedule of like every day making something, no matter what it is? Oh, absolutely. Uh, seven days a week, 365 days a year. I don't take days off. Mm. I try to avoid socializing. Um, I try to avoid any events that involve leaving my studio. I certainly don't take holidays or vacations. I'm not, other people who like socializing or like family gatherings or like holidays, God bless, by all means. I just, I, I don't like any of those things. I love being at home and going hiking and working on music and writing and just making things. So that's why I can't imagine a day where I didn't do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we've talked a little bit about play, uh, the record that came out in 1999. Lindsay, when did you start listening to that record? Uh, did you get it when it was out? 
I I feel bad admitting this. But <laughs> You've never heard it. <laughs> I, I don't know what you're talking about. No, um, I, <laughs> no, I grew up in a in a house that did not necessarily appreciate any sort of music that was not on the radio. Mm. Um, I've said before that my mother was a big fan of the Now CDs, and so sure. those were the main ones that we had. It was. I did not grow up in a in a in a house that was very interested in uh, culture, um, so I didn't. I wasn't exposed to very very much until much later in life, and at that point, I I discovered play when I was you know already close to finishing college. Nice. Um, so yeah, so I I've not spent the majority of my life with with play, but I and especially now working with Moby you know, I've become deeply uh, aware of every single element of every single song. And I have to say, it's all such a, it's such a beautiful thing. And I wish I'd, I wish I'd had it longer. Yeah. In my life. That was great. Thank you for sharing, sharing that. Uh, I, I got play when it came out and I was obsessed with the record. Looking back on it to get ready for this chat i had two things come to mind one being it seems strange and almost cosmically aligned that play came out in 1999 the same year that the oh brother where art thou soundtrack came out uh and that both of those seemed to um in very different ways and in completely different presentations sort of remind uh americans of a musical lineage that maybe had been a little bit ignored or forgotten. Not to say that nobody forgot the Alan Lomax archive or whatever, but you know what I mean? Like the fact that both of these two records were massive pop hits seems so interesting to me that on the cusp of the year 2000, there's this sort of look back at this music. Uh, well, you, you go ahead. You know, when, when play, when I made play, as you possibly know, I thought it was my last record. I thought it was the end of right. my career. You know, things were in a pretty dark place. I was bottoming out as an alcoholic and a drug addict. I had lost my North American record deal. My mom had just died. It was pretty dark. And I thought, okay, I'm going to make this record, go on tour for two weeks, and, and then I'll go back to school and get my doctorate and teach philosophy at whatever college will have me. And so the success of it was very surprising, but especially because what you're, you're referring to, 1999 was the year, I believe, that they invented the Diamond Record. Mm. And it's since been discontinued, but there was a brief period that there were so many records selling over 10 million copies that gold and platinum was no longer enough, and they invented the Diamond Record. Yeah. And so it was... NSYNC and the Backstreet Boys and Britney and Limp Biscuit and Kid Rock, these hugely produced records that people would spend millions of dollars making and major labels putting millions of dollars into them. And I made play in my bedroom on equipment that all totaled cost around $5,000, mm -hmm. you know, like, like a cheap mixing desk that I bought, a Soundcraft mixing desk that I bought secondhand. So in that climate of hyper overproduced pop records like Eminem and Backstreet Boys, there's 
no one expected a weird record made by a weird alcoholic in his bedroom to become successful, especially not if it involved vocals from people who'd been dead for decades. Yeah. And <laughs> in, in hindsight, the only thing I'll say is, and maybe this is egregiously self-evident, it was the the weird authenticity, the emotional vulnerability of those voices, of the production of the record that I think connected with people because it wasn't overproduced because I didn't know how to overproduce a record. <laughs> yeah, maybe you would have if you could have, but you didn't. Um, no, that makes sense. I also think a lot about, you know, I'm a real big fan of bands like Broadcast is one of my favorite bands. I'm a huge fan of a lot of the stuff that comes out on Ghost Box Records from the UK. And there's this thing, they talk about like hauntology, like this idea of like utilizing elements from the past. In the case of Broadcast or whatever, uh, you know, public access film soundtracks or snippets from uh, children's animation or nature documentaries, things like that. Um, but they're presenting it and collaging it with modern elements. And what it ends up creating is this like kind of strange space that is not rooted in the past nor in the future. It's almost its own zone entirely. That's what play sounds like to me. Like play is sort of a genre of one record. It's not to say that there aren't other records with breakbeats or other records with old samples, um, especially after play. But um, it really does feel like it's coming from a place that, you know, I know you're a spiritually you've you're just as open about that side of your life as you have been about all the others did you feel uh like there was um a spiritual component to what you were getting out of those those vocal samples for you on a personal level oh absolutely um the and it's funny because we were talking earlier about I mentioned how, like, when I was growing up in a perfect world, I would have been six foot four with mm -hmm. a beautiful head of hair and I could sing like Chris Cornell. And as time passed, I realized, okay, I'm none of those things. <laughs> and my inability to sing well, I'm an, av I'm an average B minus singer at best. But I realized in the early 90s, if I wanted powerful, emotional, beautiful vocals on my records, I had to learn how to work with other people and also use vocal samples. And so in a weird way that the old idea of necessity being the mother of invention, the fact that I couldn't sing well is what led me to go out and just dig through crates and record stores and search out these old vocals and then eventually just fall in love with them. And, and the, there's a pure, a, a sort of aspect of purity to this because I didn't expect anyone to ever listen to play I wasn't using those vocals thinking that there was marketability or an ability to generate revenue streams. I was simply responding to them emotionally and spiritually with the assumption, okay, no one's ever going to hear this. So at the very least, let me try and make something that resonates with me. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that comes to my mind when I think about that record is the liner notes, which you wrote. It was a collection of essays. Um, and I assume that in the same level that you thought maybe this was your last your last record and that nobody was going to hear it so you might as well make the thing you want to make i assume that there was a similar sort of motivation to those essays which is to say i better state all my <laughs> my cases now was that how it felt to you a little bit i mean like 
you know, because I grew up in the, I was raised by hippies and raised by academics. And then I started playing in punk rock bands in the 80s, my early 80s. And as you know, like punk rock, especially American punk rock, it was all a manifesto. Mm-hmm. You know, like the liner notes, the merch tables, the lyrics, everything was a manifesto. And so when I started making albums, I was like, well, I'm making an album. I don't know if I'll ever be allowed to make another album. So let me put everything into it and let me use this as an opportunity to address some issues that seemed important. Um, And then when people stopped buying albums, I stopped including liner notes because for the most part, there's no point including liner notes in a record that people aren't going to buy and read. Uh, By the way, I think that in many ways, not buying records is fantastic because it means less plastic, but it also means fewer liner notes. Um, so, as yeah, a fan so of play, liner notes, it's a bittersweet trade-off for sure. Yeah, and so with play, I was like, "Well, this is going to be my last record. Ten people will buy it. Let me throw a whole bunch of stuff in here that seems interesting or important to me, with the assumption that no one will ever see it or read it." And then, lo and behold, a lot of people did. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to like put too much blame on you, but you you did help radicalize me as a young person uh, in a lot of ways. So uh, reading those notes, I felt like there was a level of honesty and candor to them that it was just so moving to me, and it really like blew my mind. Also, I didn't have people talking to me about any of that stuff. You know what I mean? Like that wasn't the the subjects that were coming up. So it was a hugely important. It also, it made me, I grew up in the church. And so it made me realize like, oh, well, maybe there's like different expressions of Christianity, you know, or things like that. Maybe there are, maybe I could make this my own or whatever, you know, things like that. So it was really an empower, it was very, an empowering piece of literature in a funny way attached to this record that I didn't completely understand, but was obsessed with. So I just wanted to bring that up and and mention to you that it's funny how I'm sure you've had a lot of people tell you things like that over the years, but that's definitely the case with me. Well, thank you. And going back to what Lindsay was talking about earlier is, and it's especially true now that, you know, when we make things, whether it's a podcast, whether it's a blog, a book, a movie, a video, a short film, what have you, is make things and put them out there because you never know what life they're going to have. Like you never know who you're going to reach. It might even be one person, like one kid in, I assume, did you grow up in Phoenix? I I grew up south of Phoenix. Yeah. Okay. So like one kid in his bedroom who might feel isolated Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden you're able to reach that person in a way that potentially is meaningful to them. And that's, the the driving ethos i think behind releasing everything and i know a lot of people i'm sure that you talk to lots of musicians who are frustrated maybe if maybe they're not willing to admit it but they're frustrated that they're not reaching more people or the old days of like reaching people through conventional media but we're still human and we still need to connect with each other and we still need to be exposed to new ideas and that's why lindsay and i with everything we do it's just like try to make things that are interesting and potentially important and address good issues with creativity. That's why we started MobiPod is for that exact reason, because you never know who you're going to reach. And I Lindsay, there was some quote that you said that, oh, uh, what it was basically like, oh, you, 
you absolutely 100% miss the shots you don't take. Yeah, you miss 100% of the shots you never take. Dash, dash, uh, it's an old Wayne Gretzky, dash, dash, Michael Scott, right? On The Office. Did you ever see that episode? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think, uh, it's, it's an oft, uh, parodied, uh, quote, but it also is true. Okay. Well, I don't know. I went Wayne Gretzky, I assume, is a sports guy. And the, I saw the British office. So I, Lindsay, up until right now, I assumed you made up that quote. So I'm still going to continue to give you credit for it. I'll accept, even though I, I I didn't know it was a Wayne Gretzky thing. Um, I assumed I it was like that, a Michael Jordan thing. But that idea of, I mean, the 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 truth of that is, if someone writes a song or someone decides to make a piece of art or a film or a book or whatever, and then they think to themselves, "Oh well, why bother to release it? Because no one's going to pay attention." It's like, yeah, there's a good chance no one's going to pay attention but you might reach that one person who really needs to hear it and who might go on to do something truly remarkable inspired by whatever you've created and so i really think that you know the the democratic chaos of this current time means that anybody can express themselves and sometimes some people maybe should self-edit a little bit. I'll include myself in that. And but other times, like make things with integrity and put them out into the world because there's a chance that you'll reach someone who really needs to hear it. That's one thing I really admire about Moby and that I've learned a lot from and taken for my own life and hopefully will be able to put into practice better as time goes on. But Moby is always just throwing everything he can at the wall. And if something sticks, great. And if it doesn't, whatever, he just keeps throwing things at the wall and doesn't care if something sticks. Yeah. Because the act of the, of the throwing, of the making, of the doing, of the, of, of the sharing um, is what matters yeah. to Moby. And I think that's so unbelievably valuable. And I think especially now... Not for everyone, but I think for many people, there's a real fear around sharing. There's a fear around, uh, you know, showing something you've created. It feels too vulnerable. It feels too scary. It feels too, you know, who will care? But something, something that Moby does really, really well is says is he says, "I put my time and energy into it, and that's valuable, and I'm just going to put it up there." Yeah, I think it's an amazing thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's so crucial to remember that the timelines that we're talking about when it comes to art, nobody knows. I mean, I've got a bunch of records behind me and some of those records when they came out, nobody gave a shit, you know, nobody cared Mm -hmm. about this record. And then 40 years later, some reissue label puts it out into the world and everybody's obsessed with it. You know, who could ever have imagined that like mm-hmm. Mort Garson's Plantasia, the electronic album that he made um, to help plants grow music to help your plants grow that he put out in like, I think the early seventies. Um, and now kids on TikTok are obsessed with this record. It was a curiosity. It was a sort of uh, a fluke of existence that just came and went. And all these years later, people are just, it's speaking to them. So sometimes the timelines that we're talking about when it comes to art, they are even beyond us. So gosh, it's been really tremendous speaking with the both of you. I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you. I mean, yeah. And honestly, like I I remember that golf cart ride at Coachella and then the 
Uh, and I still have my Zia Records T-shirt because I don't have that many clothes, and so it still gets a lot of use. I I'm um, gonna I'm gonna let you know that I continued working for Zia uh, many years after that. I I uh, uh, left the company in 2021, but um, I had like nine images of you saved uh, wearing your Zia Ramon Seal T-shirt. Because you, yeah. you would get like photographed on like a red carpet or something or at some some event wearing it, and everybody would be like, "Save those images," because we were always so um, so moved that you repped the store like that. That was really cool. And I remember that signing because Bat for Lashes was also doing a signing at the time. Yeah. Or or she was coming in right after, and I just remember being kind of impressed. I was like, "Ooh, Bat for Lashes! Like she's so cool." She came. Um, she came in right after you, and I was conscripted yeah. into bodyguard duty. Perhaps the least, the thing I am least suited for in existence would be protecting somebody from an attacker. But I was enlisted <laughs> for some reason. I did just stand there and look at things. But I remember you signed every autograph you did. You drew your little, the little idiot. I think is what you told me. You call him. Um, and I thought that was just like so cool. And it was such a great, I'm glad that we were able to pick up that conversation we started having 10 years ago today with the added bonus of Lindsay being here. So thank you both so much. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. And thank you, Lindsay. Thanks, um, and I apologize for rambling on so much like a crazy person, but I t- do tend to ramble on like a crazy person. Moby, you always say that even on your own podcast where your job is to ramble on. <laughs> <laughs> So no but worries. Also, there's one thing I wish, and I, I hope maybe if possible, if we can do a part two of this, because before our conversation, I was looking at the AquariumDrunkard.com website of all of the guest contributors and the interviews. And this is, I'm just like in love with so many of these people and the stories. I mean, like I'm looking at, you know, like Colin Newman from Wire and you know, I mentioned earlier my girlfriend in 1984, 85, where we saw REM's Deli Platter backstage at the Beacon Cafe. She's now Wire's guitar player. Oh, wow. Um, so things going just the weirdest full circle. Uh, or Yola Tango have a song called Moby Octopad because we did some shows together and I was playing an octopad. So I had a little piece of tape on the stage where my Octopad went and said Moby Octopad. And so somehow by having this piece of tape with my name and my Octopad on it, it inspired them to write a song. So I just, I'd love to come back. <laughs> um, in fact, or I see the Buzzcocks, speaking of bands who I think hopefully will at some point be embraced by the Cognoscenti, Lindsay and I just yesterday were talking about the band Magazine, Howard Devoto, you know, the Buzzcocks original singer. Mm-hmm. And how Magazine have a live album called play and my album play was kind of named after that album oh that's awesome yeah well it sounds like there are a million connections and a number of the interviews that you mentioned were ones that i did so yeah it would be incredible to talk again with the two of you and i really appreciate you guys taking that time we'll make that happen yep i mean i see sorry i could just keep going and going i mean like pair ubu <laughs> how they their name i mean obviously that weird moment when Cleveland or Ohio was producing so much interesting music, like the dead boys and Devo and Per Ubu. Rocket but from the tomb. Ubu, yeah. 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 Um, they introduced me accidentally to the world of surreal Dadaist theater. Cause I didn't know, like when I was 15 years old and discovered Per Ubu, 
I someone some person at the library said, "Oh, they're named after a Eugene Ionesco play," and I was like, "What's that?" So because of Per Ubu, I sort of started digging into like Antonin Artaud and the theater of cruelty, and you know, Eugene Ionesco. So yeah, sorry, I just I'm just going through this list, and it's all so exciting, and I hope we get the chance to talk again because i just want to talk about every single person on your list of contributors and interviews that'd be fantastic that'd be fantastic <laughs> i'll make sure to get your contact info and we'll we'll, we'll arrange something for sure and uh i okay, really great i appreciate you guys so much thank you for doing it and i hope you have a good rest of your day yeah you as yeah, well yeah you too it's and so good, nice good meeting luck. you and talking to you and good luck with the never-ending heat dome apocalypse thanks jason take care bye, bye. Moby and Lindsay Hicks here on Transmissions. How about that? Thanks so much for spending time with us here at Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. We know you have a lot of listening options out there on the World Wide Web, so we're really honored you'd carve out some space for us. I'm Jason P. Woodbury. I produce, write, and host the show. Transmissions is edited by Andrew Horton. Our music comes from Frank Maston, drawn from his incredible discography of gorgeous library music. Find more by visiting maston.bandcamp.com. Art for this show was created by Dakota Brown. Our executive producer is Justin Gage, Aquarium Drunkard's founder. Don't miss his radio program, The Aquarium Drunkard Show, on Sirius XMU, Channel 35, 7 p.m. Pacific Time, each and every Wednesday. Transmissions is part of the TalkHouse Podcast Network. Visit the TalkHouse for more interviews, fascinating reads, and podcasts. Next week on Transmissions, I'll be joined by John Carroll Kirby. We're hitting the uh, end point for Transmissions this season. We've got just a few more episodes left in this current season before we take a break to focus on the Aquarium Drunkard year and review and begin readying interviews for our 2024 season. Uh, So I just wanted to say here at the end of the show, thank you so much to those of you who have been tuned in to transmissions this season and uh, i'm looking forward to sharing these episodes with you it was a lot of fun talking with john so i hope you come back and join us next wednesday be well in the meantime this transmission is concluded